It's May 19th, 2018, wedding day for Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. A stately procession of vintage limousines makes its way to the grounds of Windsor Castle, 20 miles west of London. The passengers are the royal family and members of the wedding party. Crowds of cheering onlookers line the streets, hoping to catch a glimpse of the prince and his American bride. It's not exactly a normal royal wedding. For one thing, it's being held at St. George's Chapel, a smaller, more intimate venue than the usual Westminster Abbey. The guest list consists mostly of celebrities instead of heads of state. And when Meghan's father is unable to attend for health reasons, the bride chooses to walk herself down the aisle. Her prince awaits her at the altar, wearing a dark military uniform and a bright royal grin. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Harry and Meghan stand side by side as the Archbishop of Canterbury officiates a traditional Anglican service. But in another small rebellion against royal protocol, the bride and groom hold hands throughout the ceremony. The Archbishop finishes the service, and then the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church delivers the sermon. The late Dr. Martin Luther King once said, and I quote, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world. After the sermon, a gospel choir sings the American song, Stand By Me. Never before has a royal wedding included an American minister, much less a black Episcopal one. Never has it featured a gospel choir. The world watches in real time as a staid British tradition is respectfully updated to make space for a biracial American bride who is deeply concerned about social justice. Across the Atlantic, a woman named Priya Parker is blown away by what she sees. She's a conflict resolution specialist, and for her, Harry and Meghan's wedding isn't just a gorgeous spectacle, it's an object lesson in how to bring people together in meaningful, even life-changing ways. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded the Next Big Idea Club, along with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant, to help connect readers to some of the biggest ideas shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one of those ideas with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, how to make any gathering meaningful. Author Priya Parker says the most recent royal wedding is a great example of a gathering that builds on tradition rather than surrenders to it. A royal wedding is one of the most formal and rule-bound events imaginable. Meghan and Harry didn't throw away the rules, but they updated them to make the experience more relevant to them and the people who witnessed it. Few of us will be called upon to plan a royal wedding, but we all organize meetings and parties and casual get-togethers with family and friends. This may sound at first like a logistical challenge, 
But is there anything more important than connecting in person with others? In her book, The Art of Gathering, Parker says we have the power to make these encounters much more meaningful, even transformative for ourselves and for our guests. Parker has spent much of her life connecting across difference. After her parents divorced when she was 13, she found herself shuttling back and forth between the worlds of her white evangelical American father and her liberal atheist Indian-born mother. Since then, she's built a successful practice as a mediator and advisor, working on race relations on American college campuses and on peace processes in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. It's not surprising that she chose to write a book about bringing people together. Priya Parker, thank you so much for coming on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So it would be easy to pick up The Art of Gathering in a bookstore and mistake it for a relatively light tactical guide to how to throw better dinner parties, how to fold napkins, name tags, all the details. But this book is so much more than that. It really is a big idea book. Why does how we gather matter so much? I define gatherings as anytime three or more people come together for a purpose. And we are gathering all of the time. We spend our mornings gathering, we spend our days gathering, we spend our evenings gathering, work meetings, schools, town halls, birthday parties, family reunions, board meetings, all hands on deck meetings. We are with other people, for many of us, more than we're not. And part of what I'm arguing here is that for decades, we have been told to focus on the wrong things to make gatherings meaningful, transformational, memorable. The majority of wisdom about gatherings goes on bookshelves that are written by experts about stuff or things. So like cookbooks, you know, to be a great gatherer, you need to be a great chef. That's not true. To be a great gatherer, you need to know about lighting. That's not true. Florists, etiquette experts. And I'm a conflict resolution facilitator. My, my core training is how do you get a group of people to meaningfully connect across difference And how do you do it quickly? And how do you create meaningful experiences for people that change either themselves, their perceptions of each other, or their perceptions of what's possible in the world? And I wanted to bring that lens to gathering. And I think that the category that we've placed gatherings in, mentally, psychologically, intellectually, is actually deeply problematic and is helping perpetuating a time of anxiety and isolation and fracture. And I wanted to change that. I think we all have experience with boring gatherings, right? With the school functions that you kind of force yourself to go to, cocktail parties with with sort of endless small talk that you suffer through. Uh, And we also have experiences with extraordinary, life-changing, transformational gatherings. Unfortunately, I think most of our experiences are in the former category. And as you know, you're preaching to the choir with me here on the importance of this, because I believe that our interactions with other humans are the single most important thing that we do. So thinking more deeply about how to architect those interactions could not be more important. We tend to gather on autopilot. So there's a specific form in our head of what something looks like. You use the example of schools, like back to school night. We imagine like parents scrunched up in these little wooden desks, you know, with a with an armrest or a wedding and imagine a woman in white dress walking down an aisle or a birthday party and you think of birthday candle and birthday cakes. And part of the problem of skipping directly to form 
is that we don't pause to ask, what is the purpose of this gathering? What is the need in my community or in this life? Why am I hosting a wedding? Is it to unite the tribe? Is it to honor my parents? Or is it to bring together people who may never again come together in this way, but when the going gets tough in our marriage, they've actually have a stake in our marriage and are willing to fight for it because of what they experienced 10 years ago at our wedding. And those are very different answers of what a wedding should look like. But because we tend to go on autopilot of what we think something looks like, we follow specific roles that may or may not make sense. And we're kind of walking around like zombies. I mean, maybe very well-dressed zombies, um, but zombies in many of our gatherings. You know, I think, I think our default assumption is maybe that, as we say about cooking, if you have really fresh, great ingredients, nothing else matters, right? And so we think about our gatherings. If we have the right people in the room, that's all that matters, right? It will just, it will sort of- The chemistry will take care of itself. It will take care of itself. If you just put people in a room, everything, you know, people are, people can figure it out themselves. And that's certainly true sometimes. And that's certainly true perhaps with like a great group of friends who have a really great dynamic and you don't really need to tweak much. As a conflict resolution facilitator, I learned a long time ago that bringing people together and just leaving them to be does not necessarily create the conditions for people to take meaningful risks. Letting people be doesn't allow for how power dynamics might take over. You let people be at a volunteer training and one person asks all of the questions and takes over all the rest of the meeting. Meetings where you know no one actually says what they think or a dinner party where everybody's texting under the table. I mean, maybe the chemistry will take care of itself. But one of the things as a facilitator that I've learned in my own craft is that 90% of the success of a night or the success of a gathering happens before anyone even walks in the door. We might have more of a problem today than we've had in the past, partly due to the erosion of religious and cultural traditions, right? I mean, everybody used to go to weekly religious rituals, and I, I, it strikes me that there probably used to be more well-thought-out structure around interactions than there is today for most people. Do you think that's the case? I, I think that's the case. I think our trust in institutions is declining. And these institutions, whether they're religious institutions or workplaces, used to be this core, the main source of meaning making, right? So you go to a church, you go to a synagogue, or you go to a temple, and the community, the way the rituals are structured, the head, whether it's a rabbi or a priest, they're actually trained in how do you actually create meaning, both within a community as well as related to a source of text, and as those various institutions are breaking down, we are actually in a context in which we are more and more reliant on each other to create meaning, for better or for worse. And you could argue that this is a very dangerous uh, trend. But all of a sudden, meaning-making is becoming democratized. And yet, we haven't been trained in the ways that traditionally shamans or priests or even educators and teachers are trained to actually hold a group, to make meaning in a group, to help a group feel safe enough to learn or to say, you know, to say something that's unpopular. And so we're kind of bumbling around and no longer have actually the rites or the rituals that used to exist when we were, frankly, more monolithic communities. Well, that is a perfect segue to your baby shower. <laughs> Uh, which, which, which was a, it was a, it, it, I think it turned out to be different from what you thought going in, right? So I have two children and you learn when you have a second child that apparently baby showers are only for first children. <laughs> but I, I was pregnant and a couple of friends of mine offered to host a baby shower. This was something that was common in our circle of friends. 
And without thinking about it, I said, yes, thank you so much. I felt honored and loved that they would take the time and resources and, and attention to throw something for me. And they started planning away. They knew that it should be, quote unquote, meaningful and non, non-traditional in the sense that I wouldn't necessarily want to like pin the diaper on the baby. I would want to do like a meaningful ritual. But a few weeks in, my husband said to me like, hey, oh, great. So when's the baby shower? What should I like? When should I show up? And I said, no, 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 no. It, like, it's not for you. <laughs> it's for me. And um, and he said, well, why? And my instinct was to say, well, it's just like the same reason you have a bachelor and a bachelorette party. Like, this is a baby shower. And he's like, well, aren't we both going to parent? And I was like, well, yeah. He's like, so why don't I also need a transition ritual? And I paused and I thought about it and I realized that he was right. And I started digging in, as one does, to the history of baby showers. And different cultures have different beliefs. But this is a pretty American um, tradition as far as in this form, which is to give gifts to help the couple, you know, defray costs. It comes from a moment where it was assumed that the mother does the majority of the parenting. And long story short, I didn't have a good answer for him. And I ended up going through with my baby shower and he actually did not come, but he ended up having a father's weekend and brought the men together in his life to kind of mark that moment. And still reflecting on it, I still don't know if either of those gatherings were what we needed. I'm not saying we didn't enjoy them, they weren't lovely, but the deepest invitation of this book and of this idea is to really ask, what is the need in my life right now, that by bringing a specific group of people together, we might be able to address. And for my husband and I, I think one of our deepest needs, and it's still true, is what does it mean in an era where we don't have a model of equal partnering and equal parenting? What would it look like to bring our, I don't even know who it would be, our people together who maybe are trying to invent this or who have done this in another context to not only help us think through where does the inequality happen over time, but also as a collective public act to say, this is really important to us, hold us to account. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead, in some ways, both of our rituals, I mean, his was more invented, but I guess mine was still perpetuating the core assumption that it's women that need the wisdom, that it's the women that needs the support, that that this is only a transition for one partner. And actually, if one of our deepest desires for me, and I think for many in my generation, is to learn how to equal parent so that you can both play a full role at home and both play a full role in the public square, we actually need to invent this together. And our rituals, if you just continue to do the autopilot way, they're not only just like nice moments, they're actually perpetuating older ways of being that we don't want anymore. Yep, yep. It doesn't even, it not only doesn't solve the new problem, it, it to some degree perpetuates Correct. a ritual Correct. that reinforces the old Correct. set of behaviors we're trying to modify. Correct. So, so you were inspired by the recent royal wedding. Do you want to <laughs> talk a little bit about that? I, I think like, you know, one billion people around the world or whatever the numbers were tuned in to watch the royal wedding. And I was really moved. And the reason I was moved is because here I was, here we all were watching this this gathering, this ritual that has been publicly witnessed for, you know, centuries, which means a couple of things. One, it's a ritual that not only the people involved, but the people witnessing all feel an emotional attachment to. And when people feel an emotional attachment to a ritual, it's hard to change it. And as I was watching the different parts of the wedding unfold, and particularly the ritual, I was very, particularly like 
her coming in, Meghan Markle coming in into the church, and then the sequence of the decisions they made of who participated in which form. I was really moved that what they, and I don't know who they made the decisions you know, behind the choices. But what at least the couple did was they had to ask this question that we all have to ask, which is, what do we keep and what needs to go? In this case, he's not marrying a, a British woman. Uh, he's not marrying an English woman. He's marrying somebody who's of mixed race. He's marrying somebody who is not from royalty. Like there's so many ways that he is splitting from tradition how do you create a ritual in which what you're actually doing is creating an, a relative equality, that there's space for both of us in this thing? And what did they do? They invited a black minister. They had mm -hmm. a gospel choir. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is pretty radical stuff yep. in the context of a royal wedding. Sure. The transgressive acts were not limited to her dress or her headpiece. Yeah. There was actual change within the sequence of a ritual while still preserving a certain element of ritual so that those who have a specific idea of what a royal wedding is could still recognize it. Mm -hmm. And that is a difficult dance. And so I was very moved by what the royal family invented and created to both honor tradition, but also make space for someone who is different from them. So Meghan and Harry pulled it off, but creating a thoughtful and relevant gathering can be tricky. Whether you're hosting a wedding or a board meeting or a holiday meal, you have some decisions to make. How much change can I get away with? What am I trying to achieve? Priya Parker has been there and she has some tips. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. If you're enjoying this podcast, you are going to love the Next Big Idea Club. To join our growing community and get a free copy of The Art of Gathering, visit nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and use promo code gathering. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast promo code gathering. So how exactly do you go about making a gathering meaningful and memorable? Priya Parker says that first, you've got to figure out what your gathering is really about. Every gathering should have a purpose, but that doesn't mean the purpose needs to be serious or not fun. But when you're clear on why you're bringing people together, your purpose should be a decision-making filter. It should help you make decisions. Like, where should we host this thing? Who should be invited? How should we spend our time? How should we open? How should we close? And the gathering is helpful when it's specific and disputable. But all of those things without a purpose are just design. And this, this notion that it should be disputable, which, by the way, I think my 14-year-old son would totally approve of the idea that he, he <laughs> feels that that which is disputable is better. Um, <laughs> that uh, it, it almost suggests to me that, that, that when we're taking some kind of risk in the structuring and in the, in the design of a gathering, we're more likely to have uh, revelatory or powerful experiences. 
By disputable, I simply mean not everybody agrees with it. Yeah. So it's a simple idea. I know of an executive director who is responsible for thinking about how she runs her board meetings every quarter. And she read this book and she wrote me and she said, I realized that my board meetings were dog and pony shows, that we were basically trying to figure out how to present like all that was well in the organization. And it was kind of not fun. I don't think the board members were particularly engaged. And I paused and I thought, what is the need? What is the purpose of these board meetings? And she thought, and she said, well, what if I actually let this board help me with the thorniest issues in our organization. And so she reorganized the next board meeting and she announced that I, I want to actually reorganize this agenda with the purposes that you actually help us with what's not working, not us showing what is working. And it was disputable. The staff was scared and thought she was making a mistake to actually open the kimono to the board, but she did it anyway. Right. So disputable means not everybody agrees with it. But when you're actually saying something, right, when it's not everything to everyone, somebody's going to disagree with it. And that's when you know you're actually doing something in the world. And you say that there's a process of digging kind of deeper to find the true purpose, right? There's a service level purpose. So we think that when a, when a neighborhood puts together an annual potluck, they say to themselves, we're doing this to get our neighbors together, mm -hmm. but that's not an adequate purpose. So we tend to conflate category or activity with purpose. So getting the neighbors together for a potluck is just, it's its redundant. It's also an activity. So if I would sort of talk to that group and say, but why do you want them to get together? Oh, I don't know. It's something we do every year. It's like, no, I do do every day. Well, I guess at the end of the day, we want to live in a neighborhood that's safe. Okay. That's interesting. What do you mean by that? What do you mean a neighborhood that's safe? Well, I want to live in a neighborhood in a context where my children don't think that strangers are scary. Well, that's interesting, right? I want to live in the kind of place where we can borrow sugar from each other. That That's interesting, mm -hmm. right? All of a sudden, you're getting to a deeper civic thesis. And that also allows for everybody to not have, um, frankly, superficial gatherings. It doesn't mean that they're not fun or they're not funny and you have to announce all of these various things and make it really, you know, serious. But all of a sudden, if you're hosting your annual potluck and you realize there's a thousand other things I could be doing, but I'm going to do this thing, I want to make sure strangers aren't scary to my children. That affects the guest list. Let's go three blocks over. Mm -hmm. Let's invite the couple on the third floor that we haven't met. Let's invite the new, right? So when you have it, when you get to the core reason of basically what you need or what your values are, mm -hmm. it allows you to begin to make discernment of who should we actually invite. And it seems like in that process, part of what we're doing is finding, is figuring out what we aspire to accomplish, really asking more of our gatherings, right? I mean, we can do better than that. We yes. can, we can, we can achieve more. Yes. Um, and, 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 and it doesn't mean like, part of this is I'm actually saying this is less work than what we're doing right now. I'm, I'm, I'm basically saying we're spending our attention on the wrong things. We're spending too much attention on the logistics of everything or on the food or on the, the aesthetics. It's not that that doesn't matter, but it's hygiene. And to spend the majority of your time actually thinking about what is this for, who do I invite, and how do I bring them into the story of that? One of the things I love about reading this book is there's so many great and inspirational ideas for ways in which we can break down barriers with neighbors and all kinds of people that we don't interact with and, and really should interact with. I learned from one of my mentors, Rhonda Sleem, uh, when I was a facilitator, that uh, when I was a when I was a young facilitator, that ninety percent of the gathering or the of the um, dialogue success happens before people enter the room. Why? Because basically the gathering begins at the moment of discovery, the moment the guest discovers there's this future promise of this thing happening. And so the mechanism of that original priming is the invitation. 
Now mm-hmm. we think about our invitations as basically a conveyor of logistics, date, time, and place. Sure. And the invitation is actually an opportunity to do the work of saying, give your gathering a name and helping people understand like, what is this thing? How do I show up? What are the norms here? How, what am I expected to do? And we tend to waste our invitations by only giving people logistical information as opposed to priming them to understand this is what we kind of hope for as you come in. Are you in? And the more specific it is, the more people can actually say, oops, uh, nope, this one's not for me. I'm going to sit this one out. Yeah. But actually, one of our one of the biggest things is because our gatherings are kind of vague and diluted and because we don't think to convey what we're hoping for in the invitation – a lot of these kind of battles happen in the room. You have a dinner party and at the beginning of that, you well, you suggest, you know, let's have one conversation and let's talk about X. And some people bristle at it. It's like, I didn't sign up for this. Who's going to control the way I talk? Mm-hmm. But if you put it into the invitation yeah. and you attach an article from Wired Magazine about the power of one conversation and you say, hey, would you be up for this? People actually then are actually saying yes or no. And part of what I'm arguing for is like, it's mm-hmm. okay to say no. It's also okay to exclude. But rather... Rather than trying to rally people in the room, make it explicit ahead of time, then the people who actually want to be there are there. And this gets to the importance of owning your job as a host. Yes. And and since I I, I have behaved differently as a host since reading about this in your book, (laughs) and your wonderful rant on the subject of being chill and how too many of us have this idea in our heads that we should be a chill, relaxed host. So chill is a, I don't even know where it came from, but it's this kind of idea that to be cool, you need to look like you don't care. But the thing is, is if you're gathering, you care. And gathering is an act of care. And so by bringing people along and then not actually orienting them to each other, not actually orienting them to the meaning there, you're actually leaving them out to dry. And so what I suggest instead is practicing what I like to call generous authority, which is first knowing the purpose of this gathering and communicating it to your guests so that they know that they're actually in, they want to do this, they're, they're saying yes to it. And then when they come into the room, you're connecting them to the purpose and to each other. You're protecting them kind of from each other and from mm-hmm, bad behavior, mm-hmm. and you're temporarily equalizing them. And most of our gatherings, particularly social ones, are under-hosted. Yeah. And what I'm talking about is helping people when they walk into a room, whether it's a conference or whether it's a board meeting, is to actually realize that they're looking around wondering, how should I behave here? What are the norms here? What can I talk about? Can I be funny or serious? Can I show my tattoos? Can I hide my tattoos? Should I get a tattoo? Mm -hmm. And (laughs) part of your role as a host is to close that aperture of meaning making and actually orient them so that they're comfortable. And at some level, like, I said this earlier, this is a book about group dynamics, and groups are really powerful when they can kind of get to work. And what I mean by that is not just get to work on like a plan or building a product, but like get to work. And the work meaning a a sacred act of figuring out how we can create something between the six or eight or 12 of us for a specific moment of time quickly. And when you don't do the work for the group to orient them to each other and to the purpose, groups waste a lot of time trying to figure out how to be. And so a powerful and a generous host does the work ahead of time. It's like saving people the throat clearing time mm-hmm. so that they can kind of get to work. Mm-hmm. And and I love this insight that there's no such thing as a power-free environment, right? That part of the mm-hmm. sort of fantasy of the chill host is that, oh, it's just going to be this kind of loosey-goosey, spontaneous dynamic where everybody can do what <laughs> they want. But in fact, when we abdicate the power vested in us as hosts, 
what you're actually doing is surrendering power to your drunk uncle or whoever the loudest person is in the room. Your drunkle. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the fathers of organizational design is a guy named Ed Schein. And he studied these, what they're called T-groups in the 1970s. And he would look at basically how a group, and people like submitted themselves to this, <laughs> full consent, and a group would come together and these researchers would watch, like there's no facilitator, there's no rules, that the group just had to figure out each other and what they were going to do over the course of seven days. And as they watched these groups unfold, he has this core thesis, which is every group, before it can kind of work together, has to figure out its relationship within the group to two things, to authority and to intimacy. And unless authority, where does power lie and for what, and is it legitimate? How do we make decisions? And intimacy, how much am I going to show of myself? Am I safe? Can I be vulnerable? And until a group understands, and they're not making it good or bad, you can have high levels of authority and high levels of intimacy. You can have low levels mm -hmm. of authority no. and low levels of, you can, you mm -hmm. can have all combinations. But until a group figures out its relationship to those two elements, it is in disequilibrium. Mm -hmm. And so part of the role of a host, and particularly in terms of power, don't think about power as like, the way I think about power in a role of a group as a facilitator is power is decision making. And so in any type of group, the role and the discernment of a host is to understand what decisions should you make ahead of time for the good of the group so it can do its work. Mm -hmm. And what decision-making power do you leave to the group so that it can be empowered enough to feel free? But they are willing to do that when the purpose is legitimate. So we've drilled down on our purpose, we've primed our guests, we've been disputable, and we've structured our event using generous authority. Now what? What could we expect to happen? What does it mean for a gathering to be transformative? Can a gathering really change your life? From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Imagine a big urban space, like a plaza or park, with row upon row of square tables. Draped over each one is a pressed white tablecloth. They're set with white china, white flowers, white candles, plus food, champagne, and wine. Thousands of people dressed all in white take their places. A leader gives a visual cue. They wave their white napkins and begin to eat. After the meal, the leader gives another signal and entertainment begins. It could be a live band or a DJ or belly dancing. When the show is over, the participants pack up their tables and their trash and disappear into the city. The experience is called Dîner en Blanc, or Dinner in White, and Priya Parker writes about it in her book, The Art of Gathering. So this is now a global dinner party phenomenon. It was started over 25 years ago. Um, and at least the myth, the creation myth, is that it was started by um, a French man who was coming back after living abroad with his family. And he invited friends to come to a picnic in the park and to bring a friend and to find each other to all wear white. And 
a huge number of guests showed up and it was this like beautiful night and they decided to do it again and again and again and again. And it began to spread to other cities. Mm. And if you go online and look at the blogs about it, people either love it or hate it. They loathe it. And I love it because it's specific and disputable and it's not for everybody. And when you watch, you know, uh, testimonials, and I, I went to one in New York, people who go are deeply, deeply, deeply moved by this evening. And they love it. And part of the reason they love it is because there's a set of rules that make you suffer a little bit, right? You kind of earn the, like, it's again, the moment of discovery is like, it, it takes time to figure out how you're going to table. It takes time to apparently find white shoes in Japan. But it understands how for a very specific limited period of time with a beginning, middle, and end, these are the rules. If you'd like to come in, welcome. And again, it is not for everybody. Um, but what I love about it is it demonstrates the power of constraints. And you don't have to go to it if you don't want to go to it. Let's talk about how great gatherings can change our lives. This notion that we're creating temporary alternative worlds with our gatherings is kind of it's kind of radical when you think about it, right? We're almost creating little sort of laboratories for alternative kinds of societies or alternative ways that people can coexist. Yes. Every gathering is an opportunity to practice the world you wished existed. Hmm. And we all have the power to do that. We all guest and we all host. And part of the reason I think gatherings are so powerful is because, again, they're happening all of the time. But we have an opportunity to create for a temporary moment of time temporary norms, temporary rules, temporary ways of being. I'll give an example from my own life. When I was around 11 years old, I got my period and came home and I didn't know if there's something to hide or be ashamed of, to tell my parents or to not. I told my mother, she picked me up in the air, she threw me around, she hooted and hollered all over the house full of joy. And so the first signal I got as a young woman is like, okay, this isn't something to be ashamed of. This mm. is something to celebrate. Right, amazing. Yeah. Then she was like, I'm gonna throw you a period party. And I was like, what's a period party? And my mother is a cultural anthropologist. So she also just like makes things up. And she said, I'm going to invite all of my friends. Again, she had a specific disputable purpose. I mean, she didn't use this language, but all of my friends, not your friends. So these are people, these are women. These are not people who, these are not young girls. To welcoming you into being a woman. And each of them were asked to bring a gift that represented to them the most beautiful part of being a woman. And in that moment, she created a temporary alternative world where I had two hours of a deep memory that people were paying attention to me, celebrating that it was something beautiful and proud and almost secretive, a secret power at some level to be a woman. Mm, and then I went, as so many of us do, out into the world and into college and heard a lot of messages that were very different from that. And this is what it means to create a gathering that has effects long after the actual gathering. I have this memory in my mind of another way of being and another set of people that were saying, don't listen to this. Don't listen to what they're saying. They just don't know yet. And so part of the power of gatherings is it's not just what you experience in the moment, but we're creating also collective memories of other ways of being mm -hmm. as we walk through other worlds. You tell the story in the book of how you chose spontaneously to tell the story of this period party that your mother threw for you. And it was a risk for you in the moment because uh, you were creating a new kind of structure for, for a dinner party. And, and that was, I think, a key pivotal moment, I think. I was hosting a dinner um, on the eve of a World Economic Forum gathering. And a colleague of mine and I realized that if you want to have vulnerability and meaningful conversation, you need to design for it. 
So along with my husband, we kind of came up with a set of rules and announced them that night. And these were the rules. This is what we invite you to do. We invite you to think about a, a story or an experience in your life that no one in the room has ever heard and what it's taught you about a good life. We're not interested in how great you are or your resume or your bio. You wouldn't be here if we weren't moved or intrigued by, you know, how you've spent your life or the decisions you've made. We're actually really interested in exploring the rooms that you've been in and what you've what it's taught you about this theme. And the only other rule is that the last person has to sing their toast. So that kind of speeds the night along. And basically... Um, this was a way to have meaningful conversation in a group. And one of the things that I found again and again, and this is from my dialogue days, is that people's stories and experiences are much more interesting than their opinions. Mm. And yet when we get into group conversations, we tend to think we should just default to discuss our opinions. And for most people, unless you're, you know, David Foster Wallace, or <laughs> your opinions aren't that interesting, but your everybody's experiences are. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, again, it goes back to this idea of like how, like, the work of this book is actually about how do you get a group to, to get into the work. The work of that night was to have a meaningful conversation with a large group of people from different countries, different generations. How do we orient to each other quickly enough that there is definitely a way, there's a way you can sequence this evening, and I believe this is about every gathering. There is a way you can sequence this evening that can produce magic. We just have to figure out what that sequencing is. And over the course of the night, different people shared different stories. And one of the things that was powerful about this theme was people started sharing stories very early in the night about what you can't talk about good life without actually talking about death. Mm. And spontaneously, people started sharing stories of being with people on their deathbed or of like their mother's dying words. And, you know, you're leaning in and people were saying things like, I hadn't planned on saying this tonight, but I, but I will. And, and it was this beautiful evening that to this day... I live my life slightly differently because of what people shared that night. And part of what a good host is, is this understanding what is the purpose of the night and what is the work of the group and how do I create a context and, a, and maybe some pop-up rules to help the group do that work. So we're living in a time of kind of intense political polarization. And we talked about how uh, there's almost a utopian potential of individual gatherings to test new ways of interacting together. Have you applied your uh, expertise to thinking about how we can heal some of the divides and get people in rooms together uh, in contexts that would cause them to have more productive conversations? I mean, I think this is the question of our time. How do we my husband has this phrase, how do we fall back in love with each other as a society? Hmm. And I think there's kind of, there's a couple of ways in. One is to not make it about the politics, but to find another way, a common interest in which you build relationships with people who are different from you because you all love duck hunting or you all love bowling. Mm -hmm. So that's the like, go with an activity that isn't actually pressing on this like really triggering node. The other option is to bring together people who are, who do vary across political differences. And to me, one of the most interesting places for this is frankly the Thanksgiving dinner table. I actually think that we do know one another. I know, I think most families within an extended family somehow have somebody who, you know, thinks differently or votes differently. Again, it's like, we're already doing this anyway, right? We're already gathering anyway. Um, 
what does it mean to meaningfully spend time with our family members who might think or vote differently from each other in a way that one still feels respected? And to me, that's, and it's something that I struggle with. And to me, that's one of the richest fodders to figure out how do you have meaningful Thanksgiving dinner? So if it's about the political part to say, okay, this year, for example, we're going to do this thing rather than to go around the table, rather than saying what you're thankful for, only that it's like, what is something that you've changed your mind about? Hmm. Right? It's not so on the nose. How do we have meaningful conversation? But how does it not be just again, don't value opinions over experiences. You say we should not be afraid of talking about sex, politics, and religion. We know that you're in favor of talking about politics at the Thanksgiving dinner table. <laughs> Would you say the same about sex and religion? You know, what I, what I mean by this is we have gatherings that are transformative have some level of risk. And the risk can be emotional, it can be psychological, it can be physical. But if you're only in equilibrium, you can have a, you can have a nice time and I'm not saying don't have nice gatherings, but I am interested in gatherings that that move, that that change in some way. And so sex, politics, and religion to me is a proxy for things that are burning, that have burning relevance. And so whether it's sex or religion, I'd add money to that. These areas where all of us are trying to figure out how to live, yep. how to make decisions, how to be in more integrity, how to fight with fairness, how to deal with a situation. And all I'm saying is sex, politics, and religion are a proxy for burning relevance. And organize your conversations and your gatherings around burning relevance in your life, in your context, um, rather than to try to de-risk the whole evening. Thank you, Priya. Your, your book has really impacted how I get together with people and, and frankly, how much I value gatherings and the potential for what can happen. And I'm sure that will be true for many of our listeners. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me and helping people see this work. If you have thoughts about The Art of Gathering or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation with me, Priya Parker, and other authors on this show at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcasts. And remember, if you join now, you can get a free copy of The Art of Gathering with the promo code GATHERING. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast promo code GATHERING. If you like the podcast, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and every major listening app, as well as at Wondery.com. Want to listen to The Next Big Idea ad-free and early? Head over to Wondery.com plus. That's P-L-U-S. Special thanks today to Priya Parker. Her book, The Art of Gathering, is available everywhere books are sold. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Sarah Singer Schiff. Sound design was by Aaron May. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. 